Pause for a big thank you to our partner making today's program possible. Managing your diabetes just got easier. The powerful new Dexcom G7 lets you see your glucose numbers on your compatible watch and phone without finger sticks. Amazing. And because Dexcom G7 is the most accurate CGM system, you can be confident in your food, your exercise, and medication decisions. All those decisions can lead to big results like more time in range and a lower A1C. Get started at Dexcom.com. Dexcom data on file 2023. If your glucose alerts and readings from the G7 do not match symptoms or expectations, use a blood glucose meter to make diabetes treatment decisions. For a list of compatible devices, visit Dexcom.com slash compatibility. Thanks, Dexcom, for being our partner. Zen Nicotine Pouches deliver nicotine satisfaction anywhere, anytime, which means Zen pairs well with you, your personality, your schedule, and your spontaneity. Zen fits easily into your bag, pocket, and into your life because it's smoke-free, hands-free, and hassle-free. So the only person who will know you have a Zen pouch in is you. Visit Zen.com or head to your local convenience store today to find your Zen. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. What's up? This your boy Lil Duval. And check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast. Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. Nine-year-old Charlotte Senna literally kidnapped off the street during a camping trip with their parents just just a few minutes away from home 20 30 minutes max at Lake Moreau State Park miraculously miraculously found alive crammed into a cabinet in her kidnappers camper parked behind his mother's house when police stormed the camper we learn He was wearing his underwear, and that is not nearly as gross as it gets. We are now learning that there is a possibility that he targeted the nine-year-old little girl after learning her late late grandfather had gotten a settlement for a couple million dollars all the way back in 1998. Was he misdirected? Did he think somehow he could get his mitts on her grandfather's money? Why was he in his underwear with a little girl in a camper? What more have we learned about him from neighbors? Has he been approaching other children in the neighborhood? We're learning also that he may have been involved in some sort of harassment on another little girl. This, as we learn, police are investigating potential links between him and two other cold cases involving teen girls. I'm Nancy Grace. This is Crime Stories. 
Thank you for being with us here at Fox Nation and Sirius XM 111. First of all, take a listen to this. She is the most courageous, resilient, um, amazing person literally I've ever encountered in my life. Um, Just unbelievable that she is just, I mean, if this just describes it a little bit, you know, she's hugging her visitors and she's doing it to console us, not the other way around. (laughs) She's just amazing. I can't even explain like the feeling of when the trooper pulled up to the campsite really fast, like (laughs) wheels peeled and everything. And I had, um, we had, I had just convinced my sister-in-law to get something to eat. She hadn't eaten, you know, in almost two days, I don't think. And, um, so we were over by the food table and then we heard, um, the trooper pull up and he jumped down and he said, we found her. And it was like, just screaming. And I had, I still have a hoarse voice. (laughs) Um, all these days later, I had no voice for several days. I screamed so much. Um, just thank, thanking God that, you know, thanking, the the police, just anyone, but just um, thank God that this outcome happened. And I, you know, we, we were all just, <laughs> I mean, there was probably 30 or 40 of us there. Just it was probably really loud and um, just so beyond elated. Um, and at that moment in time, nothing else mattered really nothing else mattered it was just like I I thought I was dreaming you are hearing Jane Senna speaking to us uh, just a few moments ago this is Charlotte's aunt about the moment that they discovered Charlotte was actually alive of course the reality is so so much different for the majority of other parents whose children go missing stranger on stranger abduction joining me the founder and director of the cold case research institute you can find her at coldcasecrimes.org, host of a brand new podcast, Zone 7, Cheryl McCollum, forensic expert. Cheryl, the vast majority um, of kidnappings are typically family kidnappings, custodial kidnappings. When you get a stranger on stranger kidnapping, the likelihood the child will be killed is so much greater. It's so much greater, and it's fast. Normally, it's within the first three hours. So when we have a situation that is going into the third day, I mean, the likelihood that Charlotte would have ever been found alive is astonishing. And it's a remarkable, remarkable day. Guys, we're learning so much about this guy, this alleged kidnapper. Uh, But first, I want you to hear our Cut 35 from GMA. What more do we know about the alleged perp? Carol Brown lives down the street from alleged kidnapper Craig Ross Jr. and tells us he had a suspicious encounter with her nine-year-old grandson this summer. I see my my grandson and... Um, and there's at a this man point standing standing with his back to me, right over him. He said, "Hey, I was just asking him if he could come help me. I 
got a weed whacker. And Brown says when she offered to get her husband to help, Ross took off. She didn't know who he was until this week when officers who were interviewing neighbors arrived at her house and heard about her grandson. They showed her pictures of suspects and she says she recognized Ross immediately. I, I literally almost got sick to my stomach, fell off my chair almost. You know, that's Cardinal Rule number one with me. Joining us from Fox News Digital, investigative crime reporter Christopher Eberhardt, who's been on the story and at the scene since the get-go. Chris, thank you for being with us. Uh, I know you're on the scene and you're chock full of all sorts of facts about the alleged perp, Craig Nelson Jr. I don't know how much you are familiar with the do's and don'ts of telling children how to stay safe, but cardinal rule number one is adults don't need your help. Adults don't need the help of a nine-year-old little boy to start a weed whacker. Adults don't need a nine-year-old little girl to give them directions. They don't need help from a, a, a five-year-old in the front yard to, to tell them where their lost puppy is. Adults do not need your help. So, number one, Adult ask you, hey, can you just step over to my car window and tell me which way is the, I don't know, QT quick trip? No, you turn the other way, the other direction from which the car is going and you run like H-E-L-L, preferably through front yards and backyards and down alleys and over clotheslines where a car cannot follow you. So right there, did you hear that, Christopher Eberhardt, Fox News Digital? Up to a nine-year-old little boy, is it a coincidence Charlotte's nine years old, asking the boy to help him start a weed whacker, and then when they offer to get an adult, he vanishes? Yeah, I've heard that story, uh, Nancy, and thanks again for having me. Um, yes, I did hear that story. Um, there was a lot of neighbors, too, that were kind of, um, uh, I guess they had the heebie-jeebies, the hair on their neck stood up um, with him, and they could never really place their finger on it. Like, people right next door, they really didn't want anything to do with it. They let, with them, um, they let the, like, their shrubs grow out. They really didn't want their children interacting any time that he was around. Um, they kind of stuck to themselves, and they told me that they purposely would avoid him. You know, there's reasons for that. With me, Dr. Bethany Marshall, renowned psychoanalyst, joining us out of Beverly Hills. You can find her at drbethanymarshall.com. Dr. Bethany, what is that? You and I have talked about it, that feeling. I A lot of people call it a hunch. I think that is um, really avoiding um what it what that feeling really is and i believe it's born from thousands and thousands of years of survival instinct when you don't know what it is but you have a horrible feeling and your instinct is to run I, whenever i see a snake i want to run now it could be a garter snake it could be a guard you know it, something very but mm -hmm. that's my instinct it, always I'm not one of those people that enjoy taking photos with a snake draped around my neck. There's a reason for that, okay? Just mm -hmm. like this, these people in this neighborhood, they didn't know what it was. They couldn't put their finger on it, what they've told us, but they did not want their children near this guy. You know, Nancy, the idea that this is part of the survival instinct is so brilliant because think about it. What got hardwired into us as human beings uh, is the instinct that helps us to survive, right? Everything else falls by the wayside, but what, what helps us to survive or helps us to survive evolutionarily endures in 
all of us at a cellular level, at a memory level. And this guy had all the signs of being dangerous. He was disheveled. He had poor social skills. He was isolated. Um, he lived in an odd environment. He had tarps over the window or on behind the window and in the camper van that he lived in behind his mother's house. I mean, I could go on and on and on. And he preferentially targeted children. And, you know, I see this often. It can be the choir director at the church. It could be a teacher who insists on taking the child home to tutor them after a school. I always say nobody should be more interested in your children than you are. Well put. Nobody, not even an aunt or an uncle or a grandparent. In the 1980s and 90s, New York City needed a tough cop like Detective Louis Scarcella. Putting bad guys away. There's no feeling like it in the world. He was the guy who made sure the worst killers were brought to justice. That's one version. This guy is a piece of shit. Derek Hamilton was put away from murder by Detective Scarcella. In prison, Derek turned himself into the best jailhouse lawyer of his generation. And the law was my girlfriend. This is my only way to freedom. Derek and other convicted murderers started a law firm behind bars. We never knew we had the same cop in the case. Scarcella. We got to show that he's a corrupt cop. They can go f*** themselves. I'm Steve Fishman. And I'm Dax Devlin-Ross. And this is The Burden. Listen to new episodes of The Burden on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And to hear episodes one week early and ad-free with exclusive bonus content, subscribe to True Crime Clubhouse on Apple Podcasts. Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. Guys, there's so much more that we are uncovering now in the days that have followed the incredible, incredible recovery of nine-year-old Charlotte. Of course, whatever a neighbor may feel or their instinctive reactions, that's not allowed in court. Joining me right now, Dr. Ernest Chiodo, attorney, physician, biomedical engineer, toxicologist, and author of Toxic Tort, Medical and Legal Elements. Okay, that's a lot. You can find him at ErnestPShayoto.com. Dr. Shayoto, thank you for being with us. I mean, it may mean something to us. It would probably mean something to jurors if they heard, hey, this guy creeped me out. I wouldn't let my children near him. But that cannot come into court. There's a lot more I'm about to tell you that can come into court if that day ever comes, but not that. Why? Well, the reason being is, as you know, all relevant evidence comes in. And all relevant, all unrelevant evidence stays out. So how is it relevant to his crime, to his, to his guilt, that he lives an odd lifestyle? Now that that's not that's not to say that uh, you shouldn't be concerned. People can have their antenna up. But from in a court of law, there's that sort of strong shield to keep. Uh, unrelevant evidence out. 
evidence that would confuse a jury and lead them to um, make a conviction based upon based upon just extraneous matters. You're so right, Dr. Shiodo. And of course, on appeal, the objection irrelevant actually doesn't get you a new trial. It may get you a ruling in court in front of a jury. Yeah, move along, counselor. That is irrelevant. But it's not grounds for a reversal on appeal. Now, if someone came up on the stand and was talking about, I just, he gave me a bad gut feeling. Okay, number one, that can be reversible because it touches on the defendant's character. Reputation evidence is not allowed in court unless and until it meets the threshold requirements of being, for instance, a similar transaction or a prior bad act that has already been agreed upon by the court. You can't just bring in, oh yeah, Jackie over there, she's a big drunk. P.S. She's not. You can't bring something like that into evidence. No. Also, it cannot be tested scientifically. You got a hunch? Okay. Uh, that's not scientific proof. Much like a polygraph, still can't come in unless both sides stipulate to it up front in a criminal trial. So, long story short, Dr. Chiotto's exactly correct, but aside from the creepy vibe he puts off in the neighborhood, what about this? In our Cut 60, take a listen to our friends at CrimeOnline.com. Craig Ross Jr., the 47-year-old alleged kidnapper of Charlotte Senna, was actually accused of sexually abusing a 12-year-old acquaintance more than a year ago, according to the Albany Times Union. However, these allegations were not reported until this past summer. Ross has since denied the girl's allegations, and the state police closed the investigation last month without filing any charges. This according to three sources close to the matter telling the Times Union. Okay, Christopher Eberhardt. Chris Eberhardt joining me, investigative reporter with Fox News Digital on the case from the get-go. And hey, Chris, listen, we're not in the fifth grade where you have to answer my question. Please pipe up if you have more information. You know, I, you've been out there beating the bushes uh, on the streets, watching, listening, talking, writing it all down, taking pictures. You tell me anything you think we need to know. But specifically, what about this? Accused of sex assaulting a 12-year-old girl over a year ago, and uh-oh, the charges were dropped. Yeah, my, my colleague uh, actually was writing about this, and, and he was the one that dug into this. Obviously, that should have um, raised some red flags right there. You know, I, I, I'm concerned about this, to Cheryl McCollum. Why? Is it because the little girl wanted to back out and didn't want to testify? Is it because she didn't tell anybody for a year later? That's entirely possible. Rape victims very often don't tell anybody. I mean, Cheryl McCollum, I know grown women, you'd be very surprised at who they are, that have never revealed a sex assault that happened in their youth. Can you believe that? Yes, I do. I know them very, very well. Absolutely. Most sexual assault victims know they're going to be put on trial what they were wearing where they were why they were alone you know their actions or inactions but in this case nancy we have a live victim that can tell what this kidnapper did what he said what he demanded um that's going to be really critical and now we have the grandmother that says her grandson was also approached by this person on a bicycle same person. So now we have two, one victim and one witness that can talk about the actions of this person and hopefully other people will come forward with that 12-year-old in her case. 
What if she told a very similar story? He said this. He did that. He demanded this. They may have to reopen that case. Bethany Marshall joining us and then special guest joining us, Shauna Burns, Haley Burns' mom. Dr. Bethany, I think it's I think what Cheryl just said is absolutely correct. Uh, the victim will be put on trial on cross-exam. But I think that it's even deeper than that. For instance, this little 12-year-old girl, she's not thinking about a trial. She just probably doesn't want to talk about it. There's something about it. You just don't want to talk about it. It's hurtful. It's embarrassing. You feel stupid for fill in the blank, putting yourself in that position, going along with whatever. The guy said, hey, come inside and look at my puppy. You went inside. You blame yourself. There's a myriad of reasons why victims never say a word. Nancy, because it feels humiliating and shameful, as you just so articulately put. So think about your own children, John, David, and Lucy, when they were really, really little Um, if anybody mistreated them or were not nice to them, they blame themselves, right? Even if it was in a more benign way, like, you know, maybe a teacher was a little gruff at them. They come home and ask, you know, what did I do wrong? So put, put that, you know, increase that exponentially to a rape or a sex assault. And the child is really going to blame themselves and then move that into adulthood. Adult women and men who are raped, abused, they fall into that same infantile childlike, you know, mindset that it must be their fault. And there's an evolutionary reason for that, too. You know, when we blame ourselves rather than the other person, we hold on to our relationships and holding on to our relationships is what helped us to survive as a species. And now it's become more complex and it's morphed in our modern day society to really understanding that this allows perpetrators and in a poly perpetrator like this guy who has multiple offense offense patterns um, to really gain a foothold over our most vulnerable members of society. Wow, you put that beautifully. With me now to react to what we have learned so far, and there's a lot more, including two additional cold cases that are being eyed for connections to the same perp that allegedly took little Charlotte. Shauna Burns is with me now. This is Haley Burns' mom. We all remember the Haley Burns case, the waiting, the praying, the torture, not knowing what had happened. You know, I was going to say it for you, Shauna, but you tell our viewers and listeners what happened to Haley. Um, it all started... On April the 28th, she met this man online um, in an internet forum specifically targeted to people that have eating disorders. And um, by May the 23rd, he had convinced her to leave our house and to go live with him, that he understood her eating disorder better than we did that we would never understand it, that we would never understand her, that we would never be understanding of her eating disorder. We would always want her to get help for it and that he understood her and that he could help her with it. Well, let me understand something. Isn't it true your little girl, Haley, ended up being held captive in a cage for 13 months? Yes, that is true. For 399 days, yes. That that is absolutely true, yes. And... Everything was fine. She, they, he, he drove from Georgia to Charlotte, four hours 
she said in the drive everything was fine. Uh, they listened to music and they uh, she, he let her listen to whatever she wanted to. They got fast food on the way. Everything seemed fine. But the second that he closed that door, everything changed. And she knew that she wasn't going to be able to leave. He made it very clear that she was his prisoner and that there was nothing that she could do and that no one knew that she was there and that she would be there as long as he wanted her to. And when he didn't want her to be there anymore, she wouldn't be. Was she afraid she would be killed? Oh, yeah. There were many, many times where he choked her beyond consciousness, where she felt like, this is it, I'm going to die. That happened many, many, many times during her captivity with him. There were many different times where at one point he uh, filled a bathtub full of water and held her under the water for, he would let her, he would, hold her under the water until she passed out and then he would let her come up, regain consciousness and then push her back under the water. And he did that. He said she lost track of time because it was so long, but it had to be hours. So there were many times where she thought that he was going to kill her. And she was starved. Yes, that was definitely part of it. Uh, he was very much into controlling how much she ate. She was only allowed a hundred calories a day. And if she wanted more than that, she had to earn those calories through favors. Um, and What do you mean by favors? I mean different favors that she would do for him would earn different amounts of food. She was raped. Yes. Any sex with a teen girl that age is statutory rape. Yes. Whether she thinks she went along with it, this young girl who was being kept in a cage for 13 months, given 100 calories a day, being waterboarded, that's rape. And I understand where you're coming from, Miss Burns, because I know adult women that still to this day have not revealed even to their husbands that they were sex assaulted when they were younger. They just don't want to talk about it. I get it. But the longer we keep acting like there's shame attached to what happens to women, the longer it will take us to fight it. Your daughter was horribly mistreated. A hundred calories a day. What would that be? A soda cracker? She was allowed um, sugar-free Jello, uh, And I believe those are 15 calories each. So she was allowed two of those. She was allowed a packet of um, cheese crackers. And sometimes she was allowed baby food. But again, if she wanted any substantial food, she had to do sexual favors to earn meat and cheese. Oh, I can hardly stand to hear what you're saying. Where is this devil straight from hell now? Well, he's in jail right now because I put him there recently for violating his parole. But he will be out again in February. I've actually put him in prison three times for violating his parole. Oh, well, I will help you for the fourth time. I can't wait to be part of that. So when you're hearing about Charlotte's kidnap and everything that Chris Eberhardt from Fox News Digital is telling us, how does that strike you, Miss Burns? Let me tell you, I was very aware of the situation because I am on TikTok, and TikTok is a very good resource for missing people. It is a huge huge like everyone gets those videos very quickly so i was very aware of it and when the news came that they had found her i literally hit my freaking knees praying and crying i was so thankful for her family that they had found her so there's like no words but i also have the exact same reaction where i hit my knees crying when they don't find them as well so i was so so thankful for her family that they found her but i know what comes along with that 
there is going to be a trial. There's going to be therapists. There's going to be specialists. Oh, gosh, you guys have just been through hell, hell and back. And now hold on just a moment as if that guy's not bad enough. We're now learning a potential motive in the kidnapping of Charlotte. We don't know whether Charlotte was raped or sex assaulted. We don't know what happened in that camper. We know she's alive. We are learning more about potential motive. Take a listen to our Cut 56, our friends at CrimeOnline.com. Charlotte sent his grandfather sued and won a $2.2 million lawsuit settlement from a sledding accident. And it was common knowledge to people in the community, according to Amanda Fries. She told the Daily Mail that she briefly dated Craig Ross Jr. And according to her, he never wanted to work, always wanted to find people to mooch off of. And she went on to say that Charlotte's grandfather sued the town of Greenfield a few years ago and won a couple million dollars. She thinks that her ex-boyfriend held Charlotte for ransom, hoping to get some money because he's struggling financially. Wow. Wow. A mooch that never wanted to work. Okay, now take a listen to our friends at Inside Edition and Fox 5. Was little Charlotte forced to write her own ransom note? We're learning that the ransom note left in the mailbox of her parents' house demanded $50,000 and that the suspect may have made the girl write it. Craig Nelson Jr., that's the name of the suspect. He is charged with first-degree kidnapping and is being held at the Saratoga County Jail while investigators look to see if he may be linked to any other cases. Authorities say he was living in a camper on his mother's property. That's where police found Charlotte Senna crammed inside a cabinet. They were able to track Ross down with fingerprints found on a ransom note that was left at the little girl's home. According to the Times Union, the ransom note allegedly asked for $50,000 and Ross may have made the little girl write that note. Family friend Patrick Kane says it's obvious that this person had some premeditated uh, aspirations. And that's one thing investigators are looking into. Wow. Okay, Chris Eberhardt joining me, Fox News digital investigative crime reporter. Chris, what can you tell me about potential motive? And is it true this guy basically never worked a day in his life and wanted to mooch off everybody else? Yeah, that's really interesting. I, I one of the neighbors actually grew up with him, and they and he's always said that he sees him leave like real early in the morning, maybe four forty-five, five o'clock. But and he just assumed he was going to work, but he actually never knew what he did if he actually did work. Um, we did get confirmation he did not work in for the postal service. So nobody really knows what he actually was doing financially. So all of these, you know, with Charlotte and any other potential connections, any other cases, um, was it special motivation? Was it financial motivation? That, that stuff hasn't been uncovered yet. Now, I understand that according to neighbors and the ex-girlfriend, quote, he never wanted to work. He always wanted to find people to mooch off, whether it was girlfriends or making his mother feel bad and supporting him. Okay, so there was a huge settlement over sledding. And Nancy, Go ahead, please. Yeah, I'm sorry, Nancy. I, the other thing, too, that I had learned, even growing up um, as a child, he and his mother did not get along. Um, I had not been able to talk to the mother. I don't know if she has a lawyer or anything, but this is just from what I've been told growing up is that she never even allowed him in the house. That's why there was always a trailer when he was young. That trailer was always outside. That's where he was living. And um, a, a childhood friend, they had an, he gave me an anecdote where he, um, the, the suspect in this case, he cut his hand. This is when he was like eight or 10, something like that. 
he was bleeding. They went to go to the mom's house. She wouldn't open the door. And supposedly, Craig Ross banged on the door with his boulder, and she wouldn't, she still wouldn't come out. She finally did throw a band-aid out the door and then just close the door. So this, her friend actually brought him over to his parents' house, and his parents, you know, taped him up and, you know, uh, and treated the wound and stuff like that. So I don't know how that relationship was uh, with his mother. In the 1980s and 90s, New York City needed a tough cop like Detective Louis Scarcella. Putting bad guys away. There's no feeling like it in the world. He was the guy who made sure the worst killers were brought to justice. That's one version. This guy is a piece of shit. Derek Hamilton was put away from murder by Detective Scarcella. In prison, Derek turned himself into the best jailhouse lawyer of his generation. And love was my girlfriend. This is my only way to freedom. Derek and other convicted murderers started a law firm behind bars. We never knew we had the same cop in the case. Scarcella. We got to show that he's a corrupt cop. They can go f*** themselves. I'm Steve Fishman. And I'm Dax Devlin-Ross. And this is The Burden. Listen to new episodes of The Burden on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And to hear episodes one week early and ad-free with exclusive bonus content, subscribe to True Crime Clubhouse on Apple Podcasts. Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. Speaking of his family, our friends over at TMZ dug this up. Listen. We are his kids. We obviously understand the gravity of this situation. I don't care what you do. If you can be okay, if you're on a public road, I am 100% aware of that. Right? But he's in jail. We want nothing to do with him. I can give a f- if the dude dropped that tomorrow. I oh, sp- so you're saying you want nothing to do with him? No, 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 no. He's disgusting. He's gross. He's, 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 he should die. I can care less. That's, that's how I feel. All right? Gotcha. I can give a rat's ass what happens. So this apparently is his son speaking to TMZ. We are his children. We understand the gravity of the situation. We want nothing to do with him. I can give an F if the dude drops dead right now. He's disgusting. He's gross. He should die. Yeah, Nancy, I was there. Okay. I believe that says it all. Chris Everhart, jump in. Sorry. Yeah, I was actually there. Um, I spoke to the son. I was there during that interaction. Uh, He was was visibly, the son, he was visibly um, uh, hostile. He clearly did not want anything to do it. This was right after, you know, just for context, there was a lot of police in that area. They went through. They came out with a couple of boxes. I'm assuming they had some kind of warrant to go through that house. It used to uh, be owned by the suspect. The kids were living there. I talked to the son myself, and he said the same thing, that he wanted him to die in prison. Uh, So there's clearly some hostility there. And then my colleague 
was also working the case with me, um, Mike Ruiz went and found the ex-wife and the ex-wife just told him, you know, go away. She had nothing to say about him. Dr. Bethany Marshall, none of that's good. And I find it really hard to believe that the children and the mom feel the same way about this guy. They all feel the same way about him for no reason. I mean, are they the ones that are wrong and he's the one, uh, only one that's right? You know, Nancy, when a parent doesn't bond with the child, the child is never bonded with the parent. You know, kids, uh, adults come to my practice often and say, why don't I care about my parent? I mean, I just don't really think about them at all. And, and often upon exploration, I realized that the parent was never bonded with them or even abused them in some way. I, I think given this guy's, this perpetrator's prolific interest in children and abusing and exploiting them in multiple ways, one of the guests wondered, well, was this for financial gain, for sexual gain? It was for all of it. He liked to exploit children in every way he could. Imagine what he did to his own children. Imagine what he did to his wife. It was probably a house of horrors. You know, there's one, you know, his wife has a, has a domestic charge against him, right? Where he choked her and threw her glasses at her and, you know, pushed her. And, you know, so, so this guy was an abuser through and through. And, and by the way, I think his adult son probably has had brewing animosity and hatred towards his father ever since childhood. And all of a sudden, when the police and the public confirm what an a-hole your dad is, it galvanizes your own feelings. So he was galvanized to express how he really feels. Is this guy, Craig Ross Jr., connected to other cold cases involving young teen girls? Listen to our Cut 57A, our friends at Crime Online. 18-year-old Jennifer Hammond, her friends called her Moonbeam, had a job working with a company that sold magazines door-to-door. Now, the sales force was staying in a local Albany, New York hotel. Jennifer was dropped off to work in the Creek and Pines Mobile Home Park in Milton, selling magazine subscriptions door-to-door. Returning at the set place and time, all of her co-workers were shocked when Hammond didn't meet them. Jennifer Hammond never returned to the hotel in Albany, and none of her co-workers ever saw her again. What happened? To Jennifer, take a listen to our cut 59. Jennifer Hammond was identified with forensic testing and dental records, and her death was classified a homicide. Finding it to be more than just a coincidence that two young women around the same age from the same area had been found murdered in such close proximity, Saratoga County Sheriff Michael Zerlo said investigators believe, quote, there is a strong possibility, unquote, the deaths of Hammond and White are related to the same unidentified suspect, in part because of the close proximity of the locations where they were last seen and also where their remains were found. The Hammond and White murders remain unsolved. But now, criminal profiler and president of Stock Incorporated, John Kelly, says the best predictor of present or future behavior is past behavior. Based on the recent kidnapping of Charlotte Cena. Kelly and others want to know more about the past behavior of Craig Ross Jr. Okay, so we've heard about Jennifer Hammond, who's Christina White. Listen to 57B. Two years later, 19-year-old Christina White, last seen by her mother at the home they shared at the Stockade Mobile Home Park. Stockade Mobile Home Park, where Christina White was last seen, is less than two miles from the Creek and Pines Mobile Home Park, where Jennifer Hammond was last seen. And a 1,000 feet from the Creek and Pines Mobile Home Park on Barrett Road, That's where Craig Ross Jr.'s mother has lived 
for the last three decades. And more. Nine months after she was last seen by her mother, Christina White's remains were found in the Daketown Forest in Greenfield. Christina had been stabbed multiple times, and due to the state her body was in, it is believed she was killed shortly after her disappearance. White's death was officially classified as a homicide. Meanwhile, Jennifer Hammond remained missing until a hunter found a human skull on Lake Desolation Forest in Greenfield. The skull and three teeth were enough for a forensic team to identify Jennifer Hammond. Her remains were found just over three miles from where Christina White's remains were found. Three miles from where Christina White's remains were found. Okay, Cheryl McCollum, cold case investigator, jump in. Nancy, you've got a tight area here. You've got less than 12 miles where all of these things have occurred. Mobile home parks, RVs, woods, they're all connected. They all have, a, as you said earlier, like a similar transaction. Again, we now have a live victim. Did he threaten her with a knife? We're going to be able to learn that. We have the young boy. The perpetrator was on a bicycle. This person has limited their area of hunting to a very small track. It is imperative that they look at all missing persons and homicide victims that have been recovered in this area. Again, now that we have a face, other witnesses and other victims can now come forward knowing that he's in jail now, knowing that there's this case being built, there's other cases being built, but this is very critical. And I want to say one more thing about the ransom, if I can. Mm -hmm. This is important to me that this child, Charlotte, was taken late Sunday night after dinner. Ain't no bank open. Then he kept her all day Sunday. No bank is open. He doesn't put the ransom in the mailbox till Monday at 4.20 in the morning. The bank ain't going to be open till 9. And who can get $50,000 cash? Even if you have great wealth, usually that money's tied up. It's in stocks or bonds or a 401k. Most people can't just get $50,000 out of the bank. I question whether that was his motive or that was an afterthought after he took her because everything he did was set up beforehand. He had a tarp over the windows of the trailer. He had a vehicle. He knew where to park in that state park so that when whoever, Charlotte or whatever child, came around that track alone, he could snatch them, put them in the car, get them back to the RV completely unseen, and lock them in a cabinet. That is premeditated, set beforehand. And the other victims, all three, the young boy and the two girls, they were all crimes of opportunity. I totally agree, Nancy. Joining me right now, Dr. Michelle Dupree, who shot to the national forefront during the Alex and Murdoch trial, forensic pathologist, medical examiner, and detective, author of Money, Mischief, and Murder, the Murdoch Saga. Dr. Dupree, thank you for being with us. What, if anything, can we learn from those two bodies. Again, for those of you just joining us, Charlotte Senna's kidnapped suspect, Craig Ross Jr., now facing scrutiny in two unsolved murders. Was he involved? Was he not involved? We don't know, but they're right there within a few miles of where Charlotte was taken. Go ahead, Dr. Dupree. Well, Nancy, a couple of things. I totally agree. I don't think this was the motive up for this was ransom. I mean, it just doesn't make sense, as Cheryl said. But also, um, I want to say one thing. You know, we talk about what she went through, and we always have to remember that no matter what the person had to do, they're still alive. And whatever they did was the absolute right thing to do. 
Um, so having said that, going back to the bodies, we can tell so much from the bodies. For example, we can tell that the, the they were stabbed, and that would be from injuries to the bone itself. We can tell other things, you know, approximately how long they were there and that kind of thing. So the body can tell us so much information if we just look for it and know what to look for. Guys, we are talking about the case of Charlotte Senna, the kidnapping suspect, Craig Ross Jr., behind bars now. We wait as justice unfolds. Goodbye, friend. Pause for a big thank you to our partner making today's program possible. Managing your diabetes just got easier. The powerful new Dexcom G7 lets you see your glucose numbers on your compatible watch and phone without finger sticks. Amazing. And because Dexcom G7 is the most accurate CGM system, you can be confident in your food, your exercise, and medication decisions. All those decisions can lead to big results like more time in range and a lower A1C. Get started at Dexcom.com. Dexcom data on file 2023. If your glucose alerts and readings from the G7 do not match symptoms or expectations, use a blood glucose meter to make diabetes treatment decisions. For a list of compatible devices, visit Dexcom.com compatibility. Thanks, Dexcom, for being our partner. In the 90s, New York detective Louis Scarcella locked up the worst criminals. Putting bad guys away. There's no feeling like it. Then jailhouse lawyers took aim, led by Derek Hamilton. Scarcella took me to the precinct and lied. 20 men eventually walked free. Now, in the Burden podcast, after a decade of silence, Louis Scarcella finally tells his story. And so does Derek Hamilton. Listen to The Burden on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.